Open your Bibles to Genesis 18. We're continuing our study of Abraham, the father of the faithful. I've been thinking a lot as I've prepared this lesson about my prayer life. And uh, I haven't liked everything I've concluded about my prayer life. I've concluded it's probably more selfish than I want it to be. And so I have tried consciously this week to incorporate more intercession in my prayers. Instead of praying so much, God, this is what I want you to do for me. I've prayed more, God, this is what I want others to do for me. You see, I think it's hard for us not to be a little selfish when we pray. It's like the story of the mama that sent her boy to his room because he was misbehaving and said, you pray to God and you don't come out until you have. And so a little while later, the boy came out and mama said, did you pray to God? Yes. And did you ask him to help you be a good boy? He said, no, I asked him to help you put up with me. (laughs) We do that a lot. Or it's like the lady, young single lady who said, I have stopped asking God for a husband. I've started asking uh, for a son-in-law for my mother. You see, so much of what we think we're asking comes back to us. Most of our prayers are like the little boy, hello Lord, this is Jimmy, let me tell you what to give me. And then I study the prayer life of Christ and I am appropriately rebuked. Luke 23, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And after you return, strengthen your brothers. How much did that knowledge of that prayer mean to Peter? John 17, the night before Jesus died, is primarily an intercessory prayer. Even on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so the example of Jesus challenges my prayer life, but so does the example of Abraham. And in Genesis 18, we're going to read this incredible text. And I think it's going to inspire us tonight to cry out to God for others when we become more aware of the outcries That God is already hearing. Verse 16. You remember the context. These three visitors, these two strangers have showed up. Abraham did not know at first they were the Lord, but he couldn't have treated them any better. And then upon revelation that Sarah is going to have a baby, he becomes aware that this is the Lord. It says, verse 16, that when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the word of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And then the Lord said, 
The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And so our story begins with this announcement of God that he's going to let Abraham know his plans. Three times in the Bible, Abraham is called the friend of God. And one of the privileges of friendship is intimate revelation. Think about it. You don't share the most intimate parts of your life with just anybody, but only those in your closest circle of friends. Jesus said in John 15 to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends because everything the father has told me, I've told you. See, this is one of the signs of friendship, intimate revelation. And so God says, Abraham is my friend and I've chosen him to bless all the nations. But I'm about to remove two of those nations From the opportunity to get blessed through him. So I ought to tell him why. And this knowledge wasn't just for Abraham. It was for his descendants. God said so that he will direct his children. And his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. By doing what is right and just. And so God wanted a reliable witness To pass on to future generations what he was about to do. And that's one thing that I think is important for us to remember as we read this story this week and next. If I was to ask you what are your top five Bible stories, particularly from the Old Testament, I doubt Sodom and Gomorrah would make the list. Maybe Noah, maybe the Exodus, probably David and Goliath. But if you would ask a Hebrew, you might be surprised... And how quickly they would say, Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you know that 22 more times in the Bible, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be mentioned? To the Hebrew, this was one of the most critical and revealing stories in God's history with men about his character and his intention. For example, Peter will say in 2 Peter 2, Later he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into heaps of ashes and swept them off the face of the earth. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. You see, God wanted the destruction of Sodom to be a warning to all men of the ultimate judgment on all sin. So he said, I'm going to tell Abraham, because he's my friend, because I've chosen him, and because I want him to tell his kids, because I want his kids to tell their kids, because I want their kids to tell their kids, because I want their kids to tell their kids. And over and over, the Hebrew people all through the Bible keep bringing this story up to tell the kids about their God. You see, when God says... Well, I'm going down there to check out this sound I've been hearing. There's been an outcry, and I'm going to go and see if it's as bad as it sounds. Okay, Abraham knows right off the bat what that means. 
Okay? God is using accommodating language here. To let Abraham know that the coming judgment is going to be based on first-hand information. God knew exactly what was going on in Sodom. You see, God does not judge based on speculation. God does not judge based on reasonable assumptions. God judges on first-hand knowledge because nothing is hidden from Him. And he uses a really powerful metaphor here. He says, the sound down there is deafening to me. Well, now, Abraham hadn't heard anything. What sound are you talking about, God? Well, God is saying, sin has a sound. Now, this idea goes way back early in the biblical record. Do you remember what God said to Cain? He said, Your brother's blood is crying up to me from the ground. And that's a powerful thought for us to ponder and meditate on. What does sin sound like to God? Sin has a sound. And God hears it. I think He hears both the sound of the victim and the violator. I think God hears the sounds, the shouts, and the rages of the abuser. And God hears the whimpers of the abused, even though it's all back in the bedroom with all the doors closed. And God hears the angry words between husband and wife. And God hears those never-voiced internal sobs of the children in the home whose parents are always fighting. God hears the wails of the woman who has no option but to sell her body. And He hears the muted whispers of the man who's willing to pay for her. God hears this. He hears the gloats in the boardroom of the unethical corporation that makes millions Off the wages of child labor in a foreign country. See, God hears the cry of sin. And each sin has a cry that is going to continue unsilenced unless it is finally silenced by the greater voice of the blood of Christ. And so God says, and Abraham knows exactly what this means. The sound down there is deafening. I'm going to check it out. Now, how's Abraham going to respond to this incredible, intimate revelation? You see, I think I would have been inclined to say, well, God, don't waste your time getting there because it's a got it coming. That is one terrible place. Everything you're thinking of doing, they deserve. And besides that, that is prime real estate down there. That's why Lot went that way in the first place. Get rid of those people. Nuke them. Let the godly have that land. I mean, let's face it, folks. These cities are without excuse. Say, well, they didn't have any knowledge. Oh, don't go there. Genesis 14 
the Lord God through Abraham delivered those two wicked cities when they were carried off by Cadalomer, the kings from the east. Second Peter 2 says, Lot was a righteous man. His soul was constantly vexed by the wickedness about them. They had his testimony, weak as it was. In fact, if you add up the genealogies in Genesis, did you know that Shem, the son of Noah, was still alive at this time? And even if you think there are gaps in the genealogy, the fact of the matter is the Noah story is still real. And so you might expect Abraham just to heartily endorse their deserved destruction. But remember God had said, this is the man I've chosen to bless the nations. He hadn't been chosen to curse the nations. And so Abraham does the most amazing thing. He puts himself between God and the outcries of Sodom. And he cries out for Sodom. Let's read one of the most amazing texts in the Old Testament, starting in verse 22. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? At this point, I'm saying, Abraham, just get to the point, okay? (laughs) And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. You see, when Abraham learned of God's intentions, his thoughts immediately turned to Lot and his family. Because he knew if he didn't intercede for Lot, nobody was going to. And so that's what's behind his question. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He is clearly trying to get that number small enough to save Lot and his family. Reasoning, he's got got a wife, he's got some daughters, they've married. Certainly he's made a couple of friends. If we can get it down to ten, we will save 
Lot. You know what's sad? And we'll talk about Lot next week. If he had gotten it down to five, it still wouldn't have been enough. Lot's witness was so compromised in Sodom that only three people were spared. But that's a different sermon. See, Abraham isn't just concerned for his nephew. He's concerned for his friend. Because Abraham only saw two options. Either you're going to destroy everybody, or you're going to save everybody. And that's what's behind his question, won't the judge of all the earth do right? Because he figures it's a whole lot more just to spare a whole bunch of wicked people than to destroy a few righteous people. See, he's struggling to reconcile God's past nature with God's announced future. They're not connecting. This is the God I have known. This is the nature of the God I've known. And here's the future you're declaring. And I'm having trouble putting the two together. And he's deeply concerned that God's reputation for justness be upheld in the eyes of the neighboring nations. You're the judge of all the earth. You must do right. It reminds me a little bit of that interesting dialogue in Exodus 32 where God says to Moses, Just step aside. I will wipe them out. And make a nation out of you. And what's the first thing Moses says? Lord, if you do that, you know what the Egyptians will say. You won't come off looking good, God. Don't do that thing. See, I think Abraham's petitions remind us our prayers need to be theocentric. We pray what we pray because of our passion for God. For his reputation. For his glory. See, he's not pleading the merits of Sodom. He's appealing to the character of God. Because he knows his friend. And his friend is just. His friend is merciful. He has been the, the uh, recipient of the unmerited grace of God in his own life when he failed himself. He knows this God is good and righteous. And eager to save. And so he intercedes based on what he thinks is God's deepest desire. See, I believe Abraham really did believe, God, I've come to know you. It's your heart to want to save. I'm asking you to do what's consistent with who you are. See, intercession isn't asking God to contradict his nature and do something he doesn't want to do. Intercession is asking God for a blessing for somebody while stressing the glory it'll bring to God. You see, it took me a long time to learn this. That my prayers don't form the will of God. But rather the will of God needs to form my prayers. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here is the most amazing thing. That our sovereign God makes the sovereign choice to alter the means by which he accomplishes his will in accordance with our prayers. Now that statement is so powerful I'm going to make it again. 
Because you don't change the will of God. You don't change the ultimate purpose of God. The purposes of God are firm and sure. But God has made the sovereign choice to alter the means by which He is going to accomplish what He's purposed based on what He hears. In other words, our prayers can affect the way God writes the story. It did this time. A glimpse into next week, Genesis 19. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, He remembered Abraham. And He brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. You see, Abraham only saw two options. God saw a third And the text indicates God spared Lot, not because of Lot, but because of the cries of Abraham. And so, the question I wrestled with all week then is, well, how does that impact my prayer life? And the way I respond to the outcries of the evil world I live in. Let me draw two conclusions. One is that God is moved by intercession. I believe that with all my heart. My prayers do not change the purposes of God. But with all my heart, I believe my prayers can change the way God accomplishes those purposes. Early in my career as a baby preacher, I was holding what back then we used to call a gospel meeting. And I was preaching that night on John 4, the story where Jesus heals the nobleman's son. If you remember that story, the man took Jesus at his word. He started to head home, and on the way he got the word that the boy had been healed. And I made the comment that night, maybe God seems a long way off to you, but the Lord Jesus wants you to take him at his word, and that miracle that your family needs could be on the way. Well, we did the standard invitation song and the standard announcements that caused everyone to forget the sermon and the closing prayer. And I'm telling you, five seconds after that closing prayer was over, someone grabbed my elbow, spun me around, and it was a well-known, respected older preacher. And he started shaking his finger. You don't believe in miracles. You believe in providence. And I thought at first it was a semantic thing. I had just used a word that made him nervous. But the more we talked, the more I realized it wasn't a semantic thing. It was a completely different understanding and theology. He was so afraid that my theology was going to let God actually intervene and enter our world that he had come up with theology that worked something like this. God has ordained what's going to happen providentially. And it's going to happen. Whether we ask for it or not, it's going to happen. And we cooperate and acknowledge it. And I was stunned. And By the way, this shows you what happens when you try to create theology, not by reading the Bible, but by reacting to somebody else's theology. You almost always come up with something sicker than what you're reacting to. So I asked him, I said, then brother, why do we pray? And he responded, because the Bible says to. In short, I pray out of obedience to a command 
that absolutely accomplishes nothing after I've obeyed it. That's pure deism. That's a God who's retired and is asleep and leaving it up to His creation to accomplish His purpose. I read stories like this and others, and I can not conclude anything but this, that God is free and willing to make decisions in light of what He hears. That crying out does impact the way God responds to outcries. After all, God is not eager to destroy. He is eager to save. The Bible says He's not willing that anyone should perish, that all should be saved. That's why God cannot understand, in the midst of all the cries that do reach His ears, why is He not hearing more prayers? Isaiah 59, the Lord looked and was displeased there was no justice. He saw there was no one. He was appalled. There was no one to intervene. See, God just was not displeased that this world is lacking in justice. He was displeased no one was talking to him about it. That same verse from the King James Version says, He saw there was no man and he wondered. There was no intercessor. He's disturbed by the presence of evildoers and by the absence of intercession. My very first time to ever be overseas... I went with Dan Coker and we visited several countries in Latin America. This was back during the Christmas holidays. And I found myself, of all things, in the city of Rio de Janeiro on New Year's Eve. And we were down by the beach where we were staying. And they were celebrating that night. And, and, and Rio is, is New Orleans on steroids when it comes to throwing a party. And, and we were outside watching as practically naked people just danced and frolicked and got very inebriated all night long and it was wickedness on a scale that this little preacher boy from texas had never witnessed and of course i felt contempt i felt anger i felt what i hope was holy indignation the next day we got in a cab and we took that famous drive way up on that mountain where the christ statue is and i was up there looking out over this city that the night before I had felt such contempt for. And it hit me. God loves this city. He does not love the sin. He does not love the debauchery. But He passionately wants to save this city. And who cares? Who's praying? Ironically, some 20 years later, our church has got missionaries in Rio, and I got to go down there and visit them. And uh, the men one night went to a very, very important soccer match. Uh, they didn't let the women come because they were concerned it wouldn't be safe. And once we got there, I realized they were wise. It was a rowdy crowd. It was an inebriated crowd. It was a vulgar crowd. And again, those feelings of indignation began to rise up. And then suddenly, it was like the Lord said to me again. 150,000 people will fill a stadium to watch a game. Will you pray that someday that many people will come here to hear the gospel? And I started praying. 
I even volunteered. I said, Lord, I'll come do it. And if you don't need me, send somebody else. But yes, Lord, I pray for the day that that stadium will be packed with people to hear the gospel. Believing intercession is a resistance movement. It's crying out as an act of defiance against the enemy's outcries. And it's the one weapon the enemy cannot stop. Except, let me hear this. The enemy cannot stop our prayers. Except to deceive the saints regarding their impact. So do we believe? I think it's the purpose of this story to convict us. Do we believe Our intercessory prayers are changing the way God writes the story. Does the future actually depend on what God is hearing? Because I believe God is moved by intercession, but I also believe God will move against transgression. He cannot turn a deaf ear to the sound of sin. He will judge wickedness precisely because he must do right. And I think this is a warning we must pass on to our children. Jude would say later, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. God must do right. He must judge sin. He must silence its sound. Oh, but the God who is just is also the justifier. See, Abraham couldn't see a third way. He's got to save everybody or he's got to destroy everybody. But God said there's a third way. He did it again at the cross. I know how to destroy sin and save at the same time. And the word of the cross cries louder than any sin. See, God can pour out His wrath while removing those He has chosen to spare. He did it at Sodom. He'll do it again. And knowing that has changed the way I cry against the outcries. For example, for many years, it was my practice whenever I was on a road that took me past a shop that peddled and sold X-rated movies and materials. My prayer would instantly be, Lord, put that place out of business. Preferably by lightning. (laughs) Just nuke it. The next time I drive by... I'll stop and shout your name if it's gone. I still think those places are a wicked evil. And the cry of the sin of those places is deafening to heaven. But now, when I drive by, I pray this. Lord, I pray the next time I come by, that place will be out of business. Because the owners will be so convicted and broken by the love of Christ, they will come to Him and they will close it themselves. That you, God, will find a way to silence sin and save at the same time. I think that's how Jesus prayed on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
And so let's take a moment and let's be like Jesus. Just bow your heads. I'm not going to tell you what to pray for. I'm just going to ask you right now to, to let the Spirit put on your heart right now a wickedness, an evil, something that is an outcry to heaven. And let the Spirit guide you. How should you pray about that? And take a moment and ask the Lord. And so, God, help us learn from the example of Abraham and even more from the example of Jesus how to pray for our enemies, how to pray for yours. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. One more thing. We sang an old hymn at the start of this service. I was a little boy. I had no clue what interceding meant. But now that I know, it's exciting to me that Jesus didn't go to heaven to retire. He went to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father to speak for us because we need it. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, Therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And so tonight, we ask you if you haven't yet to come to this Jesus. Surrender and be saved. We're going to sing a song. And if you would like to be baptized, you can make that known as we stand in worship.